standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 233 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, proud member of a two Christmas tree household. Flipping neck. Yep. To my left is Christmas Christopherson III, looking splendid. Can we, can we see it? Uh, I guess I could. I mean, I know it doesn't work for a podcast. There you go. Oh yeah, lovely tree. With at least eight dinosaurs on it, most of them sparkly. And then a smaller version of a Christmas tree, well, just a smaller Christmas tree, in the kitchen, because that's where we'll eat our Christmas dinner. It's a good idea. But a lot smaller. Is the little one like a Homer Simpson style cake that like Gary can ruin if he wants? You know how Marge used to cook a second mm. cake for Homer? Yeah. Is it? Is that like, so that Gary can do that one and you can still have your, your special Christopher Christopherson tree. Christmas Christopherson the third. No, but I'm going to petition yeah. for a third Christmas tree so that can happen. <laughs> My mum always used to put the Christmas lights on. I mean, because it was just us two and you don't trust a child to do that to a tree. So that's become my job. I do that because that's what Anne used to do. Put the lights on and then Gary started hanging bulbs and it was lovely. And I was like, oh, I think I think that one's a little bit too big to go there. And I was like, what have I become? <laughs> oh, and I kept going, I'm sorry. It's as much your tree as mine. And then just moving them slightly. <laughs> I'm a terrible human, terrible wife. You're not because I'm Hannah Dunleavy and forgive me for keep banging on about this, but I have a cheese advent calendar. And that, wow. that is because of me, isn't it? I am a much better wife to you than to my husband, Gary. <laughs> yeah. How's it going with yeah. the cheese? Yes, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Is it a full 24 yeah. days? Because I've seen those in the supermarket, but they look like they were more like 12 days. And I was like, well, that's bollocks, isn't it? 24 days of cheese. Wow. It was confusingly constructed. So it's in two halves, I think, because then you can just tear the first half off and not have to keep putting it back in your fridge. <laughs> right, okay. So I'm wondering whether the ones that have only got 12 days are actually are just maybe got ripped in half and they're only selling the half. Interesting. Bargain bin ones. I wish I'd spent more time looking at that now. I, I just dismissed it out of hand. 12, fuck off. Yeah. No. <laughs> That's still quite a lot of cheese. It does, it, it's not enough. It does leave the question of when you're going to eat it. On the day. You eat it on the day, right? I know, but but I have been having breakfast cheese. <laughs> Good. You started Christmas early. I'm, I'm not mad at it. I mean, thanks, Mickey. You have introduced the concept of breakfast cheese. I already had the concept of lunch cheese, dinner cheese, night cheese, <laughs> car cheese, and now I have breakfast. On the continent, cheese. of course, cheese is a staple part of uh, of a breakfast. Yeah, so that's true. It's not cut really thinly in a triangle, though. Which most breakfast cheese on the continent is. I think in Turkey, they're like a breakfast cheese as well. Just a wedge uh, yeah. of feta. Poland. I think that's Greek, mate. But Well, the Turkish version the is lines. exactly the same, isn't it? Is that why they had a big fight? Anyway, much as I could talk about cheese literally all day. Okay, yeah, sure. I'm Jen Offord and on Saturday I went to messy church. I mean, most churches have got some mess going on, says the, one of the Catholics yeah. in the room. So what it was is a thing where they basically, they entice the local children into the church and then try and like... Yeah, that's how it exactly, starts, Jen. Try and like get them with hooked sweets. on Jesus. And then there's a priest out the back with them all in a van that drops down <laughs> and it's a cage. They do this thing in Harwich every year. St. Nicholas arrives by boat, like, I don't know, James Bond, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> Was he on a speedboat? We missed it. I'm so annoyed. We were like, I was like, oh, they'll never be on time. He's arriving by boat. Like, of course they won't be on time. We were five minutes late. And as we left the house, we just saw these like 
hordes of children walking towards the church. So we missed it. So I don't know. But yeah, he arrives by boat and then he goes to the local church and then you go in and there's all sorts of arts and crafts and stuff. And uh, I would say Lyra was underwhelmed by St. Nicholas, frustrated by the crafts, which she was uh, far too young to do. I don't want to say it was the chocolate coin that Father Christmas gave her, but at the end she did say... We'll go back tomorrow, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> so. I was just dreading the bit at the end where you were going to say, but loved Jesus. <laughs> Absolutely loved Jesus. Really into that. But, I mean, in fairness, you know, there were teas and coffees there, there were biscuits, there's something for free for local people and their kids to do in a cost-of-living crisis. And we've got a really weird wicker Christmas decoration now. Did someone buy it from a Cambridge charity shop? <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, I chat to Jesus. Sorry, <laughs> I chat to journalist Emily Beetle about our obsession with authenticity and her new book. This is not who I am. I catch up with Takara Small, host of the They Did That podcast, which shines a light on history's forgotten or often usurped inventors, scientists, educators, musicians, artists, and activists. Wanna guess how many are women, people of colour, people from the LGBTQ plus community? Four. <laughs> Most of them. All of them. Yeah, that'd be something, wouldn't it? That would take some audacity to have a podcast which shines light on the history of forgotten inventors and they're all white they're men. They're all white, <laughs> old white men. There's Twitter twattery in Jenny off the blocks and we're back on our Nicolas Cage bullshit in Rated or Dated as we watch 1987's Moonstruck. But first, words, action, and luxury paedophiles. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. A calm and nuanced look at the... Oh, fuck, Milo Yiannopoulos has crawled out of whatever <laughs> hole he's been in. Hit him with a shoe. <laughs> Hit him with a shoe. I thought someone had filled in that hole like a responsible grown-up. Nah, mate. Might talk a bit about this in the mail out. This is the whole sorry spectacle of the last few weeks. Yeah, so sign up for our mail-out, people. You can do it on our website. I'm not sure that was the greatest sell for our mail-out, but you sure? <laughs> <laughs> now we've added Milo Yiannopoulos. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey, I'd like to talk about Balenciaga. Would you now? I'm going to guess that you already know what it does. I'm aware of its work. Yeah. But... Hang on, Joan's got it in the litter tray. We're just going to have to wait a second for her to finish scratching. It seems an appropriate response when you're about to talk about Balenciaga, <laughs> if I'm honest with you. <laughs> Go, Joan, shit like you've never shit before. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to explain for anyone who was in the position I'd have been in until quite recently, i.e. thinking it was probably a Mexican dessert, a Spanish board game, <laughs> or the singer responsible for an abominable piece of Europop. No, no, and no. Balenciaga is a luxury fashion brand. And by that, I mean it sells overpriced shit. Mm -hmm. As you'll probably know, I have zero time for the fashion industry. So was largely blissfully ignorant of the company until Kim Kardashian turned up at the Met Ball dressed in some sort of gimp outfit. Because I don't know fashion bullshit. Mm -hmm. So that established why am I talking about Balenciaga now? Well... Last week, the firm and its creative designer, the mononymous Demna, <sighs> both apologised after a fortnight of drama about a recent advertising campaign. 
The Farago started on Twitter when a Sorry YouTuber... Sorry to interrupt, go... but I just have to applaud your use of Farago. It's one of my favourite words and it doesn't get used <laughs> enough. So so thank you. Thank you, Hannah. I am going to have to apologise because my cats are being fucking mental at the minute. So <laughs> if you can hear all sorts of stuff going on in the background, I can't I hear it. So, but I Good. mean, I'm not in your room. I can sense yeah. it in your face, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there may be a lot of noise going on in the background of this, for which I can only apologise. Anyway, let's start um, again. Oh, say it again. <laughs> started on Twitter when a YouTuber who goes by Shoe on the social media site posted <laughs> photographs from the latest Balenciaga campaign. Photos that included young children posing with or near teddy bears in what appeared to be bondage gear. The teddy bears? Yes. Okay. She also drew attention to, and this doesn't get any less weird the more I hear it, <laughs> a shot of a handbag on top of some paperwork, one sheet of which showed a US Supreme Court ruling on whether laws preventing the promotion of child pornography violated the First Amendment. Oh. I know. Oh. I know. Oh. People still print documents. <laughs> <laughs> Only important ones. But seriously, someone put that there. Why? Well, that's been the preoccupation of a whole lot of people in the last few weeks. The first group, let's call them Group A, consisted largely of right-wingers who already engage in the, quote, groomer debate and who immediately leapt to the assumption that the fashion house has been infiltrated by paedophiles. And I bet they like pizzas. Many spent hours scouring the photographs, which I personally thought had the same aesthetic as your average car boot sale. (laughs) But they were looking for other clues, spawning theories about dates that were written on the wall and other items on display. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw any of this. Well, they've gone full conspiracy there, haven't they? Absolutely. The second group, let's call them Group B, consisted of largely left-wing people who are so keen to refute anything said by Group A, they dismissed the idea that there was anything odd about the photographs at all. Oh, when will the snake stop eating its own tail? (laughs) And finally, there was a third group. Let's call them Group Correct. And I think you can probably (laughs) guess from that which group I'm in, Mm. who think that the aim was probably to try to be edgy. Mm. That's not to dismiss it. All I'm saying is, those photos don't convince me that Balenciaga either is or isn't a hive of pedos. But it does convince me that they are a bunch of pricks. Child porn, or to give it its correct name, child abuse, isn't funny, isn't edgy, isn't clever. No matter how much you charge for your shit handbags. Well said, Hannah. Um, Founding member of Group Correct. I'd like to come Just into me that and group you. too. Yeah, totally. And half a dozen people on Twitter, yeah. If any listeners fancy some more paedophile chats, you should listen to my interview with the excellent Mickey Berenyi, where we're also being kind of low-key about an important topic, but I think it's quite an important listen. Yeah. Also, well done on using the correct collective noun for pedos, which is indeed hive. Um, <laughs> One of these things that just makes me think that fashion is just... Right, but even before this, and again, not to dismiss it, because I like I am absolutely joining you in group correct in that I think it's just a ploy to be edgy. Like they're just chancing their arm at getting some attention, and they've kind of got attention. You know, it sort of worked in a way. But also, their shoes are mental. They yeah. are awful. 
and I see people wearing them and you know you do you people but don't wear that shoe they're terrible yeah I saw a thing about them selling like dirty trainers for 600 quid it's very um Zoolander isn't it oh absolutely there's a real touch of derelict Derelict. about this whole thing Yeah. yeah yeah okay I have a question for you Hannah yes what is your word of the year what do you mean by that? Because I would say if it's the word that I've seen constantly, just everywhere, I would probably say the word groomer. But that doesn't mean that I use it or like it in any way. I'd like a more personal take. Oh, uh, in that case, fuck. <laughs> all purpose. That's been the all reigning champion for the past, what, 25, 30 years, maybe? Yeah. yeah. I tell you what, though, my word of the year was going to be Kinell. Big crossover on our Venn diagram there. I'm thinking that maybe we should start a dictionary. Although mm. I have seen that Black Adder the third episode enough times to realise it is tougher than you imagine. Anyway, it Hard is... fart. <laughs> Isn't it when they're trying to describe what a sausage is? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's that time of the year when dictionaries let us know what words are this year's zeitgeist in the English and American English language. Playing fast and loose with definitions like only a respected dictionary can, the Oxford Dictionary has chosen goblin mode, which is clearly two words. Mm. But then I guess it never claimed to be good at counting. That is to calculate the total number of people, things, etc. Anyway, back to goblin mode, which was actually chosen by the public, making it the first word of the year to be decided in a public vote. I don't know why people keep looking around outside the window and thinking (laughs) that the public should be allowed to vote for things. Come on now. Matt Hancock, third, and I'm a celebrity. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Big eyes. Um, The term refers to, quote, a type of behaviour which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly or greedy typically in a way that rejects social norms or expectations and is most commonly seen as a hashtag. I've always just called this Sunday, where you just sit on the (laughs) sofa and eat your weight in crisps while scratching. But then I'm quite old school. Goblin mode beat metaverse and hashtag I stand with to the top spot, taking 90... That's three words! I I don't know what's going on in Oxford. They've clearly lost the ability to do any kind of maths. It took 93% of the votes, though. So, you know, a very clear winner. Collins Dictionary chose permacrisis because, hang on, while I just check the headlines again. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally understand why that is the word of the year. And Cambridge Dictionaries went for Homer, which went viral in May, thanks to the game Wordle, and in this case refers not to the Greek poet and author, nor to the Simpsons' main yellow man, but instead refers to the informal American English word for a home run in baseball. Given you live in Cambridge, home of baseball, evidently. Yeah. <laughs> I assume you'll be scattering chat with that one willy-nilly, honey, right? Yeah, yeah? Me, me and the neighbours speak of little else. <laughs> and last but not least, American Dictionary Merriam-Webster has made a gaslighting its word of the year after searches rose by 1,740% in the last 12 months. Or at least that's what Merriam-Webster is telling us. That's... Uh... That's interesting because I would say gaslighting is quite 2018 as a word. I don't see it used as much. Not I don't see it used as much, but now I see more people know what it means, Hmm. which, you know, generally as a rule means that they don't Google it so much. Um, Although perhaps Amazon had a, a series called Gaslight. Gaslighting, Gaslighted, Gaslight had Julia Roberts in it. 
and oh, the one yeah. about Watergate. I wonder if that kicked in any extra searches. Maybe. I wonder if it's also because the term is kind of being diluted in the way it's used. It seems that if anyone's a liar... That, that would never happen. <laughs> that would never happen, Mickey. Oh, no. Am I being, uh, am I being crazy again? Okay. I'm sorry, Hannah. I'm sorry. You talk now. I don't know what I'm saying. Do you want some good news, Mick? Yes, please. If you tell me, I do, Hannah. Whatever you say. <laughs> good girl. <laughs> so, a new drug has been found to slow the development of Alzheimer's, which is about as major a breakthrough as there has ever been in the search for a cure to the cruel disease. That is good news. Called, uh, I don't know, Lecanemab. Let's go with Lecanemab. Who's in charge of naming drugs and how many drugs are they on when they name them? I don't know. I suppose it's because it's normally like a mixture of some ingredients or whoever made it. And Mm -hmm. yeah, Uh, it'll end up being called something of its own, won't it? Yeah. Let's start Caesar's drug and see how that goes. (laughs) Anyway, it works by clearing the amyloid protein that builds up in the brain of people with Alzheimer's. In a clinical trial, the drug was found to slow cognitive decline. That's excellent. Dr. Susan Colehass, Director of Research at at Amazon. (laughs) They're in everything, aren't they? That's a horrible vision of the future, isn't it? Jeff Bezos just in our brains. Oh, this is horrific. Oh, how dystopian. Sorry. Director of Research at Alzheimer's Research UK called it an historic moment for dementia research, adding... This is the first time a drug has been shown to both reduce the disease in the brain and slow memory decline in clinical trials. These exciting findings represent a major step forward for dementia research, which I think we can all agree is very good news. Mm -hmm. Even if it just turns out to be the start of a real life rise of the planet of the apes. (laughs) Cure for Alzheimer's or monkey overlords? I will take either right now. Now you're a lovely person, so I know that you'll be you'll I'm be not. like no, you are. So I know that you'll be gunning for it to be a cure for Alzheimer's, or certainly a way of helping people. But I would put money on the fact that you'd rather we got monkey overlords over pretty much anything else. Yeah, it is pretty high up. I would say probably a cure for Alzheimer's might okay. be better. Okay, might be better. Just for any new listeners, by the way, we are not minimising or diminishing the impact of gaslighting and coercive control in relationships. We talk loads about how bad that is. Yeah, yeah. we were just having some yeah. walls because you know, or indeed Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I feel like I brought the mood down again, but you know, more news next week. <laughs> Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when... What do you mean? Game over. Okay. It's that time of the week... How have I died again? Canal. Anyway, it's that time... Oh, for fuck's sake! Where is my backup? Lads? Lads? Oh. Lads. Welcome to being a female gamer. I know, I know. It's hardly news that the world of esports and gaming is a world of misogynist knob splashery, but a recent experiment run by Women in Games Argentina, an organisation dedicated to creating more inclusive spaces for women gamers, has revealed more about how many women are really treated in competitive multiplayer games. The results will amaze you! (laughs) Yeah, probably not. Women in Games Argentina had three professional Valorant players who were men, join a lobby and play as usual. But then, halfway through, they used voice changes to make them sound like women. 
So before I shock and surprise you with how <laughs> that went, lols, <laughs> a heads up that Valorant is a competitive multiplayer first person shooter, which means you can play on your own, but you will do best with teamwork, aka support and cooperation from the other players. And so, yeah, I am sure you're already ahead of me here. As soon as the men changed their voices to sound like women, any cooperation vanished. Like, immediately. What replaced it? Why? Sexist slurs and trolling, of course. Because what were these bitches thinking playing a man's game? It's a team game. I just want to contribute, says Alfredo, one of Women in Games Argentina's plants. Contribute in the kitchen, you fucking whore, is what he gets back. The stats massively shifted too. As a bloke, Alfredo had made 15 kills and had just two deaths in one game. In his game with a female voice, he landed 16 deaths. Because apparently, teamwork only makes the dream work if you're toting a ball sack as well as a gun. Alfredo said that, quote, the experience really takes away from your desire to play. <laughs> well spotted, Alfredo. <laughs> and then he added, it's something you don't want to do anymore. I don't want to imagine having to live an experience like this on a daily basis. Another player, Lucius, reportedly said he felt indignation and frustration. Yeah, welcome to the not-so-virtual reality of being a woman in, well, most spaces, to be honest. And the impact is huge. It's why women don't feel like they can pursue a career in gaming or esports, because they are treated like this. As TikToker Krista Bite, I mean, TikToker, I, I found this via a tweet, listeners. I've not joined TikTok. I don't know what's happening there. And she wasn't dancing. She was just talking, which I think is not usually allowed on TikTok. Anyway, TikToker Krista Bite, a self-termed women in gaming hype girl, concluded on her video about the experiment. The greatest difficulty of these games is not the gameplay. It's the culture. Lots of women play as men. Mm. Yeah, totally. Or just don't switch that function on. Obviously, this does affect real lives. I'm not, again, I'm not diminishing that. But the army, there's all of this sort of attitude takes place in the real world as well. Where, you know, women in the services, in the forces, don't feel like they are backed up by their male colleagues. Yeah. I mean, I, I spoke to a, someone I know recently. Happy vague. Someone I know recently about their 16-year-old kid who plays lots of these things mm -hmm. and how she was really horrified by some of the language that she heard when she was walking past his bedroom. Yeah. And was just like, what is going on there? Yeah, yeah. There's a chapter, I think, in Laura Bates's Men Who Hate Women mm. about gaming, which is disturbing. You know, it's a, where a lot of radicalisation comes out or comes into yeah. play. No, yeah. No pun intended. Yeah, I mean, it's an odd choice that I... A six foot tall man with a massive beard. I've been choosing to change my own voice to a woman's voice through the whole of this. But I'm going to stick with it. Five years and counting. Yeah, it seems to be working out for you. I'd suggest this This is one of the only places that it would go in your favour, to be honest with you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, Dave out. Sorry, <laughs> Hannah. <laughs> Hannah out. <laughs> I'm joined by writer and journalist Emily Bootle, author of the new book, This Is Not Who I Am, Our Authenticity Obsession. Gosh, that was harder to say than I imagined it would be. Emily, hello. Hi. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me today to talk about your fascinating book. 
It's about, as the title suggests, authenticity, which I'm going to say more carefully now, and the sort of contemporary desire to live our truth, as it were, and the contradictions underpinning this culture. It's an absolutely fascinating subject matter and an extremely timely one. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book and what drew you to this particular subject matter? My idea for the book sort of coincided with a period in my life when I was doing a lot of soul searching so in your sort of mid-20s when you're like I have no idea what I'm doing what is life you know all of these sort of big existential questions and I think around that time I noticed that obviously lots of other people were going through that as well but it was also like a trend happening online which you felt a lot more pressure to be yourself basically because you were having not only to be yourself but to sort of perform yourself to other people and the more that I sort of got into this this topic and started to notice the ways in which other people were trying to be themselves the more I I realized how much it kind of ties itself in knots as an idea so the minute that you attempt authenticity you undermine it because you're you're then trying to be something you're performing but at the same time the idea of authenticity is kind of founded in performing it Because if you don't show that you're being authentic, how can you know that you are? Authenticity, as we understand it in modern society, is very much tied to online platforms and and projections of ourselves, right? Because I can authentically be me and just be happy that I'm doing that in myself, right? But I think the authenticity thing, that, like as we understand it now, is a lot more about how we perceive other people perceive us. Right, yeah, exactly. It's kind of important to establish what authenticity is, I suppose. So the idea of authenticity emerged in the late 18th century as a pushback against the idea of sincerity, which was much more to do with society's rules, whereas authenticity was about individual self-expression. It came about as a pushback against being defined by society in very very simplistically mm-hmm. so who you were before this this like sort of idea of individualism started to emerge who you were was about your your rank your class your gender all of these sort of identity markers and authenticity was about yourself being defined by something from within instead so then I guess if you want to be authentic, the idea then is that your inner self has to manifest on the outside or rather they should be matched in some way, like your outer self should be aligned with your inner self. And I think what happens in contemporary culture is that we essentially have two outer selves. So not only the self that that I am now speaking to you, Mm -hmm. but our online self, the self that we're sort of building all the time there. So I think that those two selves can become very blurred. So we think that those are the same thing. Why are we so obsessed with it? And particularly at the moment, what what's going on in the world at the moment that is making us obsessed with this idea of authenticity? That is a very big question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it relates really closely to people's obsession with being happy. I think that being yourself and sort of realizing your true self in the world has become 
sort of synonymous with being happy in a lot of people's minds. And I think that's one of the reasons that I was so drawn to it as a topic, because actually what I experienced and what I could sort of see other people experience is that actually being authentic or being yourself has in a lot of ways just become another thing to worry about. It's it's like, oh my God, I'm not being myself. What if I'm not living my truth? What if I should be doing this instead? And sort of tying yourself in all these knots and getting really confused for the purpose of feeling better. So yeah, it's contradictory in that sense. But I, I do think that it's related to the pursuit of happiness, which is also like in our modern age related to the pursuit of perfection and finding this kind of like definitive self definitive answer which is personally I don't think possible. Do you think it is anything to do with control as well the idea of controlling ourselves in a world that is otherwise quite chaotic? Yeah I think I think so and I think that you know a lot of people would say that authenticity should be about letting go of control really but the way that it's sold to us by brands influencers self-help all this stuff yeah it's definitely sort of about putting some kind of boundary around yourself saying this is who I am that's it no you know no room for maneuver and I think like yeah it's it's a good point because what so often happens is I think that the idea of the self becomes this sort of unimpeachable, indisputable thing, which protects you against against everything. And I think that it's obviously not the only reason, but I do think that it contributes to the sort of polarity that we see so often online, because you, you're saying, well, this is me. And if this is me, then what you're saying can't be true. You know, it can't, it doesn't have a lot of room for two perspectives two truths to exist at the same time because your truth is undoubtable you can't you can't challenge it Kat Rosenfield a friend of the podcast wrote a piece about your book for Unheard in which she flags an example that you give uh, which is Rousseau who says mm-hmm. to be authentic you have to be who you are but also to be seen to be who you are so I think that's really interesting particularly in the context of what you've just said it's about this idea of finding happiness finding your true self you know living your true self etc etc is is tied to this idea of happiness and yet we absolutely tie ourselves in knots trying to do it because of course an audience changes our behavior doesn't it yeah yeah absolutely and you know this is really interesting in relation to reality tv as well because reality tv stars are often you know some of the celebrities who we see as the most authentic and who boast the most about being authentic as well but of course when there's a camera there no matter how much they think they're being authentic or they're not deliberately performing as soon as you're being watched you know the dynamic changes you can't be a kind of simple manifestation of your inner self you are by definition performing and I suppose to sort of (laughs) use a bit of a cliche we've all got cameras on us all the time now we're all performing constantly even if we don't even if we don't feel like it you know it might feel like posting 15 Instagram stories of our night out is just a, a live stream a stream of consciousness or like a a real depiction of what's happened that night but the minute that you get your phone out you've changed it you know, you've mentioned influencers already, and this is the sort of crux of my issue with a lot of influencers, is that 
this sort of authenticity in inverted commas has become big business hasn't it yeah and i you know I, i've followed some people over the years who i've had to unfollow because they might have started off initially having something useful or interesting to say or that i found useful or interesting but then they've gained a following through saying it and suddenly they've just become like a vessel for advertising things for brands who think that you know their values will align with their audience and so then they just become advert 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 (laughs) it's interesting isn't it because the first thing to say is that influencers obviously their sort of unique selling point is that they are authentic in the sense that they're they're more like you and I than you know I was going to say Kim Kardashian but she kind of is an influencer um but I'm so like Kim Kardashian honestly my life and hers (laughs) are just very very similar indeed um (laughs) I mean that's kind of the whole point of influencers is that they're authentic in both the sense in that they're ordinary in some way and in that they are sharing a lot of themselves online but as you say, once they start to monetize it or just sort of like advertise for all these brands, become this sort of middleman, I suppose, that that sense kind of goes away. So I think that's the kind of surface level of it. But at the same time, why can it not be true that they are living their truth by flogging brands online? They are doing it in reality. You know, I think it absolutely is Kim Kardashian's truth that she's flogging things online. I I 100% believe that that is her truth. Yeah, that kind of leads us to this idea of relatability, which you define in the book as a generic self-sabotaging personality that leans towards extremes and also as behaviour that would ordinarily be seen as embarrassing. That's really interesting and it is so true. And again, you follow people on Instagram because you think, oh yeah, you know, she's she's just like me, not Kim Kardashian, to be clear on that. So I, I've got a two-year-old, for example. Okay, this person really struggles with their two-year-old. You know, their two-year-old's annoying, they, like they do annoying things, they draw on the walls. And, and here's this person who's like, oh God, you know, toddlers are hard work or whatever, right? Yeah. Great, relatable content. But it's odd, isn't it? Because like there would have been a time where it would have been embarrassing to admit that it's hard work bringing up a toddler. Or to imply in some way that you're not coping very well with bringing up a toddler, which, by the way, I think is really normal. Toddlers are fucking hard work. (laughs) What I think is interesting about that is that, you know, we could probably debate all day. Is it a good or a bad thing that that authenticity of like, oh, look, life is hard, you know, Mm. is kind of put out there? Because what does it say about our society? What do we actually want when we're looking at this? Are we looking for reassurance or is this just like straight up fucking schadenfreude? (laughs) it's a really good question is it good or bad and it's one that I've gone back and forth on a lot over the course of researching and writing the book I think we want both of those things as the short answer reassurance and schadenfreude I think it's a refreshing break from all the perfect influences to see somebody struggling you know a lot of the authenticity movement if you like on social media was kind of sprung up in opposition to the highlight reel thing that that happened during the the middle of the decade it's both reassuring and it's nice when somebody's actually having a worse time than you sometimes (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I think it obviously in some cases and I'm gonna say tentatively in moderation is a great thing that we can we feel able to kind of 
share these details about ourselves and connect with people on maybe a deeper level or yeah make people feel like they're not alone if they're struggling with their toddler because I don't have children myself but I can imagine that maybe once was very isolating so it's obviously not sort of black and white you can't just say god all this like bullshit on Instagram people um like sharing incessant details of their lives but what I think is a bit insidious about it is that there then becomes this compulsion to share it's not just a kind of organic if you like interaction it's like okay well now everyone else is doing it so now I've got to put all of these sort of dirty details out there about myself or I've got to prove that I'm not being fake by doing something else and I think that that's where that pressure comes in again where people start to feel sort of a bit trapped and I think it also it also means that again to come back to the sort of central paradox it can't then be entirely genuine there's always going to be a curation involved even when what you're what you're showing of yourself is something negative you're deliberately showing yourself in a certain light a lot of this is wrapped up in the idea of the self something which I hear young people particularly wanging on about a lot like self-care self-worth etc these are good things you know like in and of themselves these are not bad things but increasingly it feels to me that we are completely wrapped up in ourselves trying to project something or other that we we've kind of lost all value for the collective like even a protest picture is great for the gram right yeah do you think that's right do you think we have just completely lost the sense of like collective value and and do you think this is something we can come back from I completely agree and I think that this is you know one of the main reasons that I wanted to write the book was because of this sense of people turning inwards constantly. And I think often there's that cliche about having to put your own oxygen mask on before you can do anyone else's. And I see that a lot, sort of invoked a lot online in relation to to authenticity, but also to, you know, collective activism, I guess. And I think that that is clearly true in a lot of ways. But I agree that people are often so preoccupied by what's going on inside them and whether or not they are living their truth projecting authenticity projecting uh perfection whatever it is that they you know I will include myself in this it's not it's not criticism but it's easy to lose sight of the broader sense of life <laughs> like what's going on what do I care about what's going on around me what, rather than just what's going on inside I also think that there's a chapter in the book about identity politics in scare quotes which I think is also quite closely linked to our authenticity obsession in that these external identities can be really both appealing and also in some cases genuinely useful in kind of self-realization and also vice versa right like again looking inward can help you sort of establish yourself as a member of a community but I think that those two things the kind of external identity and the internal identity can kind of get confused and I think that that that's sometimes what leads to a lot of the conflicts that we that we see the question of whether we can come back from it um (laughs) I don't know because you know every time I go on social media I just think god this is a hellhole this is awful like I can't believe it but here we are 
we can't come back from social media. I mean, I hope that we will find new ways to engage with it. And I also think that the way you use social media is so bound up in your age and your generation. So I'm kind of hoping that just as time passes, different groups will find different ways of using it and dealing with it. But I do think that the culture that has been created by social media is pretty firmly embedded into like how people of definitely of my generation and younger interact with each other and with the world and with themselves so is that a bit bleak I don't know no, <laughs> no. I don't know not against bleakness if it's <laughs> you know if it's true I think it's yeah, it's terrifying isn't it I think that you know ironically one of the things that we're now told to do on social media is like go on social media less and all of this self-help stuff that seems to be just absolutely prolific on Instagram at the moment Mm. so you would hope that at some point that will filter in and maybe if Elon Musk keeps buying everything (laughs) it will all just collapse in a big pile of ashes on the ground and then we can all be free (laughs) but who knows (laughs) how is it possible that it took Elon Musk for us to realize how fucking toxic Twitter is I know Okay, Emily, this has been fascinating. Your book, This Is Not Who I Am, Our Authenticity Obsession, is published by Autac Press and is available now. Where can we see you living your true authentic life on social media? (laughs) So I'm living my true authentic life on Instagram with sort of varying degrees of irony and I'm at eBoots with a Z. Lovely. Emily, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by journalist and broadcaster Takara Small, host of new history podcast They Did That, a weekly show that acknowledges inventors, scientists, educators, musicians, artists and activists from underrepresented groups for their extraordinary accomplishments. Takara, hello. Hello. So yeah, tell us all about They Did That and how it came about. So this podcast is really a labor of love. It's a project that I'm just so proud of. It really all started, I'd say, with my career in journalism. So I write about technology and business for Canada's public broadcaster, the CBC. And just throughout my life, I've interviewed some really amazing people, some of the leaders and innovators who have created some of the products we use and love every day. But they're not necessarily the ones we read in newspapers or we see on our TV. They're slightly hidden in the background. I started thinking about what other amazing people have we not heard of that haven't been really spotlighted, we, we like to say in North America, given their flowers, who have not been given their flowers over time and should have. And that's really what created this, you know, this need inside of me to create a project that kind of delved into that. I'm also like, you know, a Wikipedia editor and I like to create, you know, posts and blog posts and stories that highlight people of color and women online because they are most likely the ones who won't have their own page. And so I've always been interested in telling these interesting stories. And I was very fortunate that Tom Koenig, who is the head of Sony's podcast, invited me to meet him and like pitch him stories. And I was like, this is a story that needs to be told. These are stories not just about people in the U.S., but around the world that I think people would really love. And he really got behind it. He supported it. 
And ever since then, we've been researching, working very hard because um, these stories are often hidden. So it takes a lot of work to unearth them. And we've been producing these weekly stories that I am just so amazed and astounded by the feedback we've gotten. Catherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughan, Mary Jackson, Rosalind Franklin. History is littered with people who made huge impacts on our lives, but weren't given credit, weren't given their flowers, as you say, or have just been sort of erased or forgotten from the story entirely, particularly women, particularly people of colour, particularly people from the LGBTQ plus community. And it is so important for our future to shine a light on these people from the past, isn't it? It is. I think it's really important to provide a complete look at our history. I know in recent years there have been conversations about diversity and inclusivity, and sometimes I feel it's framed as a new phenomenon, that it's interesting and it's important to welcome new groups into whether it's tech, science, art, etc. But these people have always contributed mm-hmm. to what makes society great, some of the greatest inventions of all time. The products and objects we rely on, they've always been around. They just haven't had the opportunity to be placed in center stage. So I think it's so important for you know the next generation and people today to recognize that we need people from all walks of life, from every part of our society, if we are going to tackle some of the most pressing issues we're facing now. Totally. If we want society to function properly, we need everyone who is involved in that society to have input and to have recognition for their input so that the people who come up behind them also want to input. Exactly. Exactly. Seems like a no-brainer. And I can tell from the way you talk about it that you find it really exciting bringing these forgotten stories to life. I am. Yeah, I'm like smiling right now. Such a big megawatt smile right now. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, it it really touches on all of these different aspects that I love. You know, full disclosure, I'm such a huge Trekkie. I love Star Trek. And I love how they're always exploring new worlds and they're finding new people. Mm -hmm. And and it's just such a, a really great show that just really emphasizes how many different people and groups can come together to make a really amazing atmosphere. You know, the Federation. Sorry, that was a real Trekkie sidebar. But I like to try and bring it in into every interview. But, you know, as a, as a journalist, I get to research and fact check and I get to look in, and find these new stories that a lot of people have never heard of. So it's, it's like really fascinating for me because I get to talk to these people. Some of them are alive. Some of them have are deceased um, or I get to talk to their loved ones. And I get to hear all of these stories and learn all of these interesting facts. Of course, we only have about 30 or 45 minutes for a podcast. Mm-hmm. There's only so much we can fit into it. But there's just so many interesting things. I think, you know, I'm going to just give an example of one particular story. Like there's this woman named Alice Ball. She died in her 20s and she came up with a treatment for leprosy, you know, as Hansen's disease. And she passed away and her boss took credit for her treatment, her invention. He, you know, he ended up in academic journals. He attended events. He had the type of career that any academic would love to have. And it's only in recent years that we're learning more about the fact that this wasn't his invention, this wasn't his scientific discovery. It's little things like that that I think are so interesting and and really inspire me in my day-to-day life to just keep pushing and working hard and doing as much as I possibly can in this series. This becomes a real theme in They Did That, that throughout history, there have been a lot of people taking credit for something that isn't theirs, right? Mm -hmm. It is. It happens more than you know. And I'm sure, you know, your listeners will, will be like, oh, my goodness, 
that happens to me. My boss is taking credit for that project, <laughs> yes. that idea. Or there's a woman in a meeting who was just like, that literally happened to me the other day. I made a point and someone else took credit for it. Um, so it happens all the time. Um, and But when we don't emphasize and we don't acknowledge that some of the biggest, brightest, best ideas and inventions came from people who are women, who are disabled, who are LGBTQ, who are BIPOC, um, then we don't, we, we tend to look at, um, or we tend to ignore those demographics as being valuable members of society. We tend to think like, oh, well, the only real inventors, the only real scientists who can solve today's problems look like, you know, this man. And that's not true. I vividly remember being on a date back in my oh, hideous dating days, and a man telling me, one, that women couldn't be funny, fuck off. Two, that they couldn't be writers, jog on, mate, I'm a journalist. And three, yeah. that, you know, just women just weren't as smart. And you could see that because there hadn't been as many female scientists. And I was like, we weren't allowed to study and we didn't get credit for the stuff that we did find. Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, he said that with a straight face. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah. That is so ridiculous. And that's why it's so important to tell these stories, right? Because mm -hmm. people need to understand that there are a whole group of people who actually did contribute to the sciences and the, the many different you know, industries. And what you said before, for a very long time, women were prevented from actually learning or, or going to school or, you know, being taught some of these the sciences. And so, yeah, maybe there's a, a slight dearth in the number of women who are in the sciences because we're playing catch up now. <laughs> like for a very yeah, long time, yeah. <laughs> we weren't allowed in those spaces. Exactly that. And obviously we have to acknowledge that there were are women in the world now that still aren't allowed in those spaces. And that's why it's important to champion women and people of color and minorities that have achieved such incredible things and have always achieved such incredible mm. things. Now, I love it, Takara, because it sounds like you get down and dirty into the detective sections as well and yeah. then you get involved. And I wondered if you could talk us through the process of, of finding these people who have been forgotten and therefore are harder to find and then how you dig up the information and verify their stories and get all the juicy stuff that goes into the podcast. Yes. And I have, you know, such a great, amazing team, um, two producers in, in particular, Tiffany Walker, um, Ava Mabegi. I remember in the early stages, particularly when I was pitching this story to, you know, the head of Sony, I was so nervous. I was like <laughs> doing all of this research on my own. I was like digging through so many libraries and archives to find these stories. It can be honestly challenging. It can be very hard. I will say that the communities that advocate for women in science, for example, for BIPOC in the arts, for people with disabilities or LGBTQ in certain industries, they have been so helpful and amazing mm -hmm. um, because these are people in these communities who have always known about their heroes and what they've done. So we always try to welcome and incorporate them into our stories because they've, they've been living and working alongside these legends for so long and no one really cared to hear them or listen to their stories. A lot of the work is not as glamorous as some people might think. It's looking through archives. So the U.S. has an incredible patent archive, and they also have amazing documents on the Library of Congress where it includes information about people who contributed to patents or contributed mm -hmm. to inventions. A lot of the time, women or BIPOC or LGBTQ, 
they didn't have their names in the patent because they couldn't afford it or it wouldn't sell as well. There were a lot of economical, financial reasons why their names weren't attached to it. But when you start to look through the documents, you start to realize that, oh, this individual actually created it well before it was patented, or this individual is the one who's explaining it or has the detailed drawings. So it's a lot of research and going through like the history books and looking through what was written and versus what is, you know, in a museum with the sign name is in a document. It's a lot of work, but definitely 100% worth it. Now then, you've just mentioned patents. And because I am brand standard issue, I've listened to all of the They Did That episodes that focus on women. So that is so far three out of the four episodes currently available. Alice Ball, Beatrice Davis and Kenner and Elise Guy, Guy Blachet. Regular listeners know my French accent is fucked, so they'll understand. <laughs> All of their stories are amazing, but Beatrice's was the one that really stood out for me. And basically, women had to wait decades for better mm-hmm. sanitary protection because of racism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, you know, when going through this story and learning more about sanitary pads and menstrual products back then, it was just like so, I'd say shocking. For instance, women didn't really use tampons because it wasn't considered appropriate for women who hadn't had children, weren't married mm-hmm. at that point. I'm sure we can like all in our minds come up with as to why that would be. You know, before Beatrice, women would have like these cloth products that we would pin into our dresses or pants and it was very uncomfortable. Uh, and, and Beatrice came up with an idea that would create what is now, you know, the modern sanitary pad, the the modern pad. And she worked so hard. She, I mean, first of all, she got a patent, which in that day and age is so unusual for Mm -hmm. a black woman to be able to afford it, to be able to go and jump through all the hoops to, to get it. She had this great idea and she pitched it to everyone. Like, you know, some of the the modern companies that exist today, like Johnson and Johnson, like she went everywhere and really wanted this product to be available to women. And at every turn you know there were individuals who just didn't feel like purchasing a product from a black woman and marketing a product maybe a black woman would work so women for decades had to deal with i think subpar products you don't want pins around your nethers pins pins in Mm -hmm. your dresses like can you imagine how uncomfortable that would be yes i can (sighs) i was like i remember when we were uh, working on this i was like can you guys get me one of those old school? And they're like, why? (laughs) I just feel like I need to know what it would feel like to live and work with pins and cloth being made into this like adult diaper situation that you had to rinse and clean at night. I was like, I just wonder what it would look like, what it would feel like. We couldn't find one, obviously. It's just, again, a little bit infuriating because how many inventions how many products have been, you know, have been made, have have been created that we just don't have because of racism or sexism or discrimination. And that's just one story. I mean, I want to share one. There's there's this one story I'm working on, and I'm sure I'll get fired if I share it. But there's this <laughs> one story I'm working on that I really, really love. And it's taken this one particular woman who made this earth-shattering discovery five decades for her to get her quote-unquote flowers so she's getting them now she is getting her flowers good getting her flowers now and just talking and you know going through everything and five five decades it's an entire lifetime her career could be in a much different place 
if she was just acknowledged at the time. And there's just so many stories like this. I mean, this one particular story with this one woman is unique and it's fascinating, but there's just a million stories out there. And we, we have a weekly series, but there's only so much we can do. Every week, there's more people who are like, oh, well, did you hear about this person? Did you ever think about doing an episode on, on this, this individual? And it's like, oh, my God, how many people out there are there? So now I feel like you might have hinted at it, but I was going to ask you if you have a favorite story so far. Oh, um, that's a toughie. I mean, like, I imagine it would be like asking someone who has multiple kids, which one's your favorite child? Yeah, and um, everyone has a favorite child. Let's not pretend they don't. Um, <laughs> I like them all for, like, different aspects of their story. Like, obviously, the, the Beatrice episode as a woman that like really hit me hard because um, she's a black woman. I'm a black woman. And she um, made this invention, this product that would have made life a lot easier for so many people. And, and we had to wait decades for it. Elise Guy Blachet, she was a French woman, you know, world's first female director and was ignored by history. But a lot of the things she pioneered, like close-up shots, the music video, special effects, all of those things that we have come to love and we expect to see, like in Marvel movies, homework, TV shows, all of those things um, were by her. Oh, there's just too many. I I love them all. Is that a cop-out? <laughs> <laughs> I'll allow you to do a cop-out. Okay. It's fine. How many episodes are there going to be in a season? Ooh, yes. So we have 24. Okay. So we are it's a good just season. getting started. Yeah, we are just getting started. I mean, it's great because the podcast is great and it means you can keep going. But it is a bit like, oh, heartbreaking that all of these people have been lost, right? Yeah, it is. I mean... And it's around the world. So I think the first couple of episodes, we had one woman who is from France and we've had a couple of women who are from the US, but you'll start to see throughout the season that we're branching out. So it's really interesting. We have one episode about someone from Canada. We have a couple episodes from people who are from the UK. We have a really great, amazing episode from someone from China. So we have like all of these amazing episodes that are international. So regardless of where someone is located, what their background is, they will find someone, they will hear a story that they can, I think, empathize with, that they can get to know, or, you know, they'll be introduced to for the first time. And, you know, we have like so many episodes to go around the world. So it's, it's exciting. It's, a lot of work but <laughs> I'm like so proud of the show and the team and the joy of history podcasts in general the joy of delving into history is not only are we getting a snapshot and an insight into these people's lives but also into the time that they lived which is really interesting yes exactly oh, like I want to go through so many stories but I'm like oh well my executive producer hate me but I will say like there's, you know, there's one particular story that's coming up. It's about a woman who created a, a particular type of clothing. And it's so interesting because when we're researching her life and her history and how this particular product changed the world, we also learn about all the opposition she faced throughout, not just the period when she was inventing it, but her entire life. Like mm -hmm. women were not expected to attend higher ed unless it was to find a partner. 
and, you know, pursuing a graduate degree was incredibly unique at the time. And then even in the workplace and in the lab, and there are just so many places along her journey where she faced so much hardship and opposition to something that we now use every day. That's part of our everyday life. And when you get to understand the trials and tribulations that someone faces, particularly in that time in history, you also get a peek into why the world is the way it is today. Because the individuals who made those decisions, who placed those roadblocks in front of our creator inventors are still alive. And in some places are still making decisions that Uh govern how we live. So, you know, looking back at history is essential because it provides us with the reasons and I think even sometimes a path into how we can change society today. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. When so many decisions and the way that society is run now have been determined by straight, white, able-bodied men, then no wonder it doesn't function for huge swathes of us. And the thing is, is like we are in a time and in a place where we can change that. You know, mm-hmm. like we, we are living and I, and I hope people walk away from this also inspired because, you know, the individuals that we are hearing, whether it's from the relatives, if this person is deceased or sometimes these people are still alive and they're in their 50s or 60s, you know, the people that we are talking to are providing such a wealth of information and hope and optimism. And, and they themselves are like, wow, things have changed so much, like things have changed so much for women and things have changed so much for LGBTQ and, and for black indigenous people of color because we kept fighting you know Mm -hmm. because we kept pushing i hope that resonates with people that we can change and make this world a much better place totally yeah and like just going back to my favorite which is definitely beatrice just her determination i was like wowzers for some of that energy man yep yes please They Did That is available to listen to on all podcast platforms now and a fresh episode drops every Thursday. Where can people follow you, Takara, on social media to find out more about what you and the podcast are up to? Yes, so I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on TikTok, all the places, at Takara Small, T-A-K-A-R-A-S-M-A-L-L. Please hop in my DMs, slide in there and suggest people we should focus on. Tell me about what your favorite episodes are. And don't be shy if you yourself have done something that's really great, that's really amazing, and you haven't been acknowledged, please speak up. I feel like there are so many women, so many people who listen to our podcast and have done amazing things and maybe feel like, oh, I don't know if it's that great or if I should say something, like completely beat yourself up. Like, let me know. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Pleasure. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That time of the week where we are not talking about Qatar as we discuss all things women's sport. Okay, we're talking about Qatar very briefly. Just to say congratulations to Stephanie Frappard, who made history last week when she became the first woman ever to referee at a men's World Cup match. Frances Frappard led an all-women on-field team, including Noisa Back of Brazil and Karen Diaz-Medina of Mexico, with the USA's Catherine Nesbitt taking control of the VAR. And if you've ever read anything about VAR on Twitter, or indeed female match officials, I pity the fool. In all seriousness, this is mega. Excellent news. 
In other great football news, we head to the Republic of Ireland, where it's been announced that professional contracts will be introduced for the first time in the Women's National League in 2023. And those players will be subject to the same contract and indeed minimum wage rules as their male counterparts. And there'll be transfer fees for pro players who move to other teams. Those wages are not going to be at the dizzy heights of Raheem Sterling or even Chuck Zanike. Look him up. He plays for Charlton Athletic. We're talking a guaranteed £317 a week for full-time players and £112 a week for part-time players. So you're probably going to be wanting, at the very least, a side hustle if you want to get a mortgage anytime soon. But it's a start and we welcome it. Would you like another good news story about football? Oh, okay then. That news is that in the wake of the Lionesses Euro victory this summer, Sky Sports have seen an increase in TV audiences for the WSL of, drumroll please, 70%. Lads, you are going to have to pay more than £15 million for the broadcast rights next time. I know that sounds like a lot of money, but for comparative purposes, the Premier League domestic broadcast rights are worth about £5 billion. Back to Twitter, where I must depressingly return to talk about a report published this week by World Athletics, the governing body for, you guessed it, athletics, highlighting abuse aimed at athletes. The study was conducted during the World Athletics Championship held in Oregon this year, following one conducted at last year's Olympic Games in Tokyo. However, this year's study was extended to cover Instagram as well, and monitoring three times the number of athletes compared with the previous study. In news that will surprise absolutely no one, almost 60% of all abuse was directed at women. 29% of the abuse detected involved sexualization, though curiously only 7% is described as sexist, so we may need to have a word about what constitutes a sexism, guys. 19% was racist, so almost a fifth. 20% was categorised as slur, which I assume isn't just your mum jokes, and 3% was ableist. We do then get into some quite murky 2% war crimes, 2% terror, I think you get the picture. It's not nice. I say this is depressing because it is, but also because of the total lack of surprise most of us will feel regarding these stats. At one of the sports broadcasters I used to freelance for, a male member of staff told me he routinely turned off comments on any article about Serena Williams because the nature of the comments were almost always so deeply unpleasant sexist racist he just didn't want to see it the good news is however that governing bodies are apparently taking this seriously enough to bother monitoring it and then feeding it into the safeguarding policies around their athletes Let's end with a genuinely good news story about the Joint Men's and Women's Cricket League, the 100, which the England and Wales Cricket Board has reportedly received a private equity bid of £400 million for a 75% stake of. The ECB has not yet provided any comment on this. Is this actually a good thing? I don't know. Money ruins everything, right? But I'm equal opportunities when it comes to ruining sport and paying women fairly. And it shows a level of progress that we could only have dreamed of even 10 years ago. If you book them, they will come. That's all for me this week. And I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which film that we watched this week caused me to once more ask, despite all his rage, is he still just a Nicolas Cage? (laughs) 
This week we watched 1987's Moonstruck, which was written by John Patrick Shanley, who won an Oscar for his efforts for Best Original Screenplay. He's written a handful of other films, including 2008's Doubt, but is better known for his work in theatre, which is where Doubt, in fact, started out. The film was directed by Norman Jewison, who had a back catalogue, including In the Heat of the Night, The Thomas Crown Affair and uh, Rollerball. Mm. Mm. The film stars Cher as Loretta Castorini, a 37-year-old old Italian-American <laughs> She's bookkeeper. She's so old. She's old, <laughs> who is living with her family in Brooklyn after she was widowed young. When her husband was run over by a bus, Loretta believes her marriage was cursed after not going through the proper traditional motions like, for example, getting married in a church, etc. So when dullard boyfriend Johnny Camareri proposes to her, she wants to do it properly this time, as soon as he's back from visiting his dying mother in Sicily. Loretta's family are like, meh, about dullard Johnny, which I think is an appropriate response, but her mum Rose, brilliantly played by Olympia Dukakis, is okay with it, because you can only really be hurt by someone if you actually love them, right? Mm. Rose has got her own problems anyway in philandering husband Cosmo. Loretta meets Johnny's estranged brother, Ronnie, played by mad, bad and dangerous Nicolas Cage. After she's sent to invite him to the wedding, it turns out he's got a wooden hand and he blames his brother for distracting him, thus causing a horrific workplace accident in his bakery, which led to the necessity for the prosthesis and for his girlfriend to dump him, leaving him heartbroken. In a bid to pour oil on troubled waters, Loretta heads upstairs to Ronnie's flat for a heart-to-heart, some whiskey and an inevitable nobbing, which is going to cause some trouble in the whole traditional wedding pursuit, right? Right? Mm. Mm. Now mad Ronnie is in love with her and wanting to take her to the opera. Come on, Ronnie, she implores. She's marrying your brother, mate. It can never be, she protests as she totters home to quiff her hair bigger than the Met, where she returns to meet him in a slinky frock in what can only really be described as a mixed message. But fuck a duck, Johnny's back. Are they going to get married? Will Loretta come clean? And what is that prick Cosmo up to anyway? In terms of the reception, this film was a big hit. It spent a total of 20 weeks in the US box office top 10 and grossed a worldwide total of $122.1 million from a budget of $15 million. The critics also liked it. Roger Ebert included the film in his Wait For It because he actually has one great movies list. I mm-hmm. thought he hated all films, but apparently that's not the case. <laughs> and it was pretty much universally lauded, with critics highlighting its comedy and warmth, and in particular, the performance of Cher. Indeed, Cher won an Oscar for that performance, Best Actress, as did Olympia Dukakis for Best Supporting Actress, giving it three wins from six nominations at the 1988 Academy Awards. Cher was up against Meryl Streep and Glenn Close that year, so all power to her and her done hair, which is one of my favourite lines from this film. I like your hair. I had it done. Yeah, you did. (laughs) Fucking hell, that is big. Now... The reason I chose this film is because I've heard it referred to often in the story of how my dad, Clive Owen, came to be the patron saint of our <laughs> of our local cinema, The Electric Palace, where he watched it with his now wife among an audience of him 
and his now wife, just the two of them, <laughs> cementing his love of both her and the cinema. Aww, oh, that's, that's nice, isn't that's it? That's nice. So I'd never watched this film before. Uh, I think that's because I'd always assumed it was a bit silly because it stars A, Cher, who's actually great and I think has brilliant comic timing, mm. and B, Nicolas Cage, who is Nicolas Cage. So... <laughs> Hannah, Mickey, first of all, I want to know if either of you had seen this before. And secondly, I want to know, did it engender any warm and fuzzy feelings in you? I'll let Hannah go first. I mean, it's going to be quite quick. No. (laughs) And also, no. That's why I let her go first. (laughs) Yes. And also, yes, would be my answer. Although I take umbrage with your description of Nicolas Cage in this as mad bad and dangerous to know i think he's just loud sad and overtired that's how he comes across to me he's like barely registering on the cage like continuum of crazy absolutely mickey and i had this conversation last week because i said that you know you know when people see jake gillenhall and they say jake gillenhall was being a bit too hammy because he has a tendency to go too hard sometimes on roles and be i mean i think he's great in a lot of stuff and i was thinking his most high tempo that he goes before people start criticising him is at least four below this film. And this film is pretty low key as Cage yeah. goes. Yeah, he is in a league of his own in that whole sort of, I am going from talking perfectly normally and everything's fine to know it. <laughs> like it just goes, his ability to switch up is Fuck no, and I know you won't, but see face off. <laughs> and I know you'll never do that yeah. again. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mickey, I've seen that, and I hold it against you. (laughs) Can I add, though, that yes, it engenders warm and fuzzy feelings. I think it's a really lovely romantic comedy. I think the performances are superb. I love a bit of Vincent Gardinia. I love Olympia Dukakis is amazing in this. Cher's great. Nicolas Cage is Nicolas Cage in it, but, you know, minimum cage. I think it's cracking. But I will say it's sexual politics are whack, obviously. But yeah, I've seen it before, and I think it's just really nicely done. I laugh quite a lot. It's It's charming. I was going to say, did you laugh? Because I laughed once. I laughed quite a lot. And it turned out to be right at the end when the whole thing gets wrapped up really quite nicely and sort of inexplicably. And then the old man at the table says something along the lines of, I'm really confused. I don't know what's happening. And that made (laughs) me laugh. And the rest of it was, yeah. So I wanted to Mm. ask you specifically about the the sexual politics because there are obviously some quite dated attitudes in here but weirdly it had me thinking of the youth of today because Loretta comes across as like a bit mercenary at times and she's a bit like have you got a ring and then she's kind of like well are you gonna get on your knee like you know what blah 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 things that you might now be a bit like is this a bit you know whatever she explains that as being tied in with the bad look of her first marriage doesn't she she's like you didn't get down on one and there wasn't a ring and so I want to do it properly so that you don't get hit by a bus she Uh, does but they are still quite old school oh it's yeah it's really that whole thing's really old school you know at least most of its characters are elderly so that does Mm. fit in sort of of course it's going to be old school because we aren't talking about like people our age in the no but that's what I think is interesting about it is that I actually think a lot of that has kind of come full circle and I see a lot of that in some of the chatter and we've talked about it before Hannah and Mickey I think which I don't really like in the youth of today when they're kind of like come on then what's all this you know like do you do this you do that make an effort I'm worth it kind of thing 
Yeah, I agree. There is a definite kind of, I am a woman, I am powerful, therefore Mm. I deserve to be treated like I want to be treated. But unfortunately, some women then go as far as to say, and how I want to be treated is like a princess. And that's the point at which I don't agree with them because I'm, yeah, as an equal is as far as I would go with that. What I'd also say in Moonstruck's defence, though, is that she comes from a very traditional italian american mm. family so you see a yeah. lot of this in the sopranos as well this is like how this culture treats relationships it has to be done properly there are certain boxes you have to tick what do you think about the drawing of the gender roles because i think rose for example is quite an interesting character isn't she i like rose a lot i think she's great i think everyone in the film has sort of got a theme that they come back to so you know share because, I mean, they gave her another name, but her name's Cher. But she's all about the look, the bad look, the good look. How how mm. am I going to get lucky? And Nicolas Cage's character, again, Ronnie, sure, but Nicolas Cage is all about the rage. <laughs> I actually, just as a little side note, I do think that this is an understated classic Cage being Cage, because Ronnie's not sure why he feels these things anymore. They just exist, and he will act out on them. He is just going to feel them anyway, really loudly. And Rose is all about sort of death isn't she she keeps coming back to you know men cheat because they're frightened of death that's her little theme that she wants validated and she gets that validation because someone else says it they think the same i don't know she has agency she takes agency at the end she says you know it's me or her or she doesn't she says please stop seeing your mistress to cosmo and he goes all right but he has to bang his fist on the table first so that everyone knows mm. that he's got the cock and the balls in the house, you know. And then he's like, okay. There's an interesting kind of politics around the idea that Nicolas Cage's rage, and a lot of that comes from the fact that his girlfriend or his fiance left mm. him because he lost some fingers. And I feel like that in itself as a plot point is kind of glossed over because... I don't know, if if somebody said that to me, I would feel like there was more conversation in that. And the first conversation would be, what sort of person does that? And the second point would be, is that really why they left you? Or was it because you became an arsehole after you had your fingers? It's part of the problem, this rage, if that Mm. makes sense. But instead, Cher tells him he's a wolf. And uh, And he did it it on purpose. He did it on purpose. So there is more of a conversation about it, but I'm not saying it's the right conversation about it, but there is more. It just feels like it falls into that, you know, in order for Cher to be the good woman, there has to be this fucking horrible, terrible woman. But I don't think she's made out to be fucking terrible and horrible either. And yeah, and Cher's certainly not perfect because she's cheating on her fiance. With his brother. Yeah, I mean, that's another. So yeah, I don't think there is a good woman, bad woman thing. Even Mona, the mistress, she just seems really nice. She doesn't seem like she's an evil other woman who's trying to steal a man. She seems very sweet and she laughs at Cosmo's not jokes. She's not a figure of hatred. She's just someone that Rose doesn't want Mm. in his life anymore. It's so gentle. Yeah, I do want to say, though, one thing I did really like about this, and despite the fact that as a character, I don't know what his name is, but as a character, he isn't very nice, and that's John Mahoney's character. But those scenes that he and Olympia Dukakis get together are fucking magic. Mm. They're both so good. John Mahoney is so brilliant. And it takes an older woman to teach this Mm. man who is abusing his position as a professor, basically, to seduce his students to realise that maybe, one, he shouldn't be doing that. Two, it's a bit pathetic. Mm. And three, older women might have something to offer. Well, would you look at that? Yeah. There was a line about him, like, having a conversation with a talking dog, which made me laugh. I'm like, was Fraser after this? Fraser was after this, right? Yeah. 
Oh, definitely yeah. after it, yeah. Because I think, like, with Rose, I don't know, you do, you feel quite sorry for her for a fair bit of it. Her husband's having an affair and, you know, she knows it and she's miserable about it and she feels quite disempowered at times. But then on the other, she gets most of the best lines and she delivers them, like, brilliantly. Like, I just want you to know that you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, if you give any of those animals one more bit of my cooking, I will kick you to death, old man. <laughs> she's got agency and I think she... Yeah. runs the house as much as Cosmo in that traditional way brings in the money it's Rose's house but I think in this film men are definitely come across as the twats right I think they're weaker I, don't, I genuinely don't think anyone is a twat in the film I don't think there is a twat in it it's too gentle mm. to be like that I mean they definitely come across as being led by their mm. prince yeah weak and which may or may not be true that's not my place to say and I thought bits of it were like quite well observed. My powder has been wet from the start. It's a good film. <laughs> the stuff that I'm like, it's dated in lots of ways that it addresses sexual politics. As far as I'm concerned, as a feminist looking at it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't agree with that. But it's, you know, it's very sweetly drawn, does what it says on the tin, romantic comedy. Is it going to change someone's world? No. Is Hannah going to like it? Absolutely fucking not. But is it just, it's just a really nice romantic comedy? Yeah. What are the bits that you take umbrage with then, Mick? Like, I don't like that Cher's character ends up with Ronnie's rage. I do think his rage is something that should be off-putting now. I, think, I don't think that's a way that you should woo a woman, and I'm very much putting mm. that in bunny ears. You know, the whole, like, he kisses her without her showing any kind of interest. He just kisses her, and she does that, oh, really annoying thing of fights it, then kisses back. It's like, oh, we don't need to see this anymore, but this is 1987. And then he scoops her up and throws her on the bed. And But, you know, she is complicit in that. She's enthusiastic. You can hear her enthusiasm. She's like, yeah, yeah, leave me, a husk of a woman. But, yeah, it's it's old-fashioned in that way, isn't it? It's dated. Hannah, what did you take umbrage with? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's a word for that mickey and it it's it's like old school romance that's what exactly it, if, if rick had done that in casablanca you know that would have been perfectly normal not for us but for the time it would have been perfectly normal i think it's more normal in the 80s mm. own, but i don't know i'm not that romance kind well, of it's person. grand gestures rather than anything with substance yeah exactly that what did i take umbrage with it's just boring romance is boring i, I just didn't care i just really didn't care i just thought oh great she's gone from someone really boring to someone who appears to be unstable hooray i mean what is that just not my kind of film yeah it didn't really do a lot for me but i also didn't hate it you know it's it's no love actually it was just sort of (laughs) a damp squib to me but anyway it's interesting that given you like i say mickey seemed to like it i do like it and that obviously there will be other people who liked it and obviously it was massively popular and given that it stars Nicolas Cage and Cher, it is one of those films that I don't really see ever in popular culture. Mm. It isn't one of the classic rom-coms that people will bring up of, you know what I really loved. It was a bit like um, when we watched Gross Point Blank, that it just sort of disappeared a bit. Yeah, which is a shame. Gross Point Blank is way better, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I was surprised when I learned that it was an Oscar-winning film because it doesn't feel like it deserved Oscars, right? Well, I yeah. think that's interesting that it is basically just a rom-com, right? But it won three Oscars. It's quite rare for a, just a rom-com to win or three Oscars. Or indeed comedy. Uh, Shakespeare in Love did, didn't it? 
won quite a lot. But I think that gets more gravitas because it's about Shakespeare. Like people automatically afforded it more gravitas than maybe it deserved just because of the Mm. subject. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the Oscars do make big mistakes sometimes. There are sometimes you look back and you just think, what the fuck? I've never even heard of that film. How was that? I mean, I'm not talking about films from like the 50s. You're talking about films from the 90s that you're just like, what? I think with Cher, you said she'd be Glenn Close. So I'm guessing Glenn Close was for Fatal Attraction. And even though yeah. like her performance is incredible in that film, she gives it absolutely yeah. everything. I'm so pleased she didn't win an Oscar because it is a hideous piece of shit, yeah. even if it's got Michael Douglas in it. But Cher is brilliant in this, I think. I think she's a really good oh, actress. she's a really good actress. And she's so beautiful and what she does with her face is shares business but like why would you mess with that face agreed yeah surely with that much hair you could just sort of hide the bits you don't like anymore she's 75 percent hair in that scene but anyway i think i know where we're going to go with this but rated or dated hannah surprise me or or don't (laughs) surprise you oh (laughs) yeah dated mick dated but I had a nice time. I don't actually think it is that dated because I think a lot of that shit we'd see in a rom-com even now, probably, sadly. Like the protesting the kiss and then going along with it and blah, blah, blah. That shit is on TV all mm. the time still. So I'm just going to say rated. Lovely stuff. Who's next? Tis I. And I bring you gifts. In next week's Rated or Rated, we are going to be watching <laughs> The Muppet Christmas Carol. God bless us, everyone! (laughs) Standard Issue for All Women